This morning, this message is going to be a little different than normal. And I uh, didn't know if you understood that this is the first Sunday of 2016. Did you guys get that memo? We, we launched a new year, new things happening. And so um, we're going to start this morning with a topical message. I have a couple this year, well, more than a couple, and uh, actually looking to, to preach eight or nine different topical messages. And they're going to be spread out through all of 2016. And, and the, the, the messages will, will cover the marks of what a healthy church is. And, and I'm doing that to, to recenter, refocus again where we're at, who we are as a church, and, and direct and to see from God's word. And so if you're here visiting, this is a great service to, to pop in, to see and understand who our church is, because this morning we're going to launch that. And then next week, we'll begin our book study. We'll be in the Gospel of John. We'll be on that for a number of weeks. But this morning, the message is topical, and I relied heavily upon three different books and authors, and, and I'll explain why. I, the, there's pastors that have been pastoring for a long time, and these guys uh, have been through the trenches, and three books in particular that have been very helpful to me, I thought would be very helpful to us as we dive into the series. The first one is, What is a Healthy Church? by Mark Dever. And so I want to encourage you, I'm going to list these out. And my message this morning, the notes, my message, I'm going to have copies of it next week because I want people to, to grasp it, to learn it, to study it. And I'll have a title of these books also. And because I want to encourage you to, each of you, get a copy if you don't have already. But the first one is, What is a Healthy Church? by Mark Dever. The second one is, The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ by Ray Ortland. And they're all real small, so you could totally read these in, in one evening. And the last one is, What is the Gospel? And in these three books, this is by Greg Gilbert, are going to center around the message this morning, and that is a biblical understanding of the Gospel. And so each of these authors do a great job, and I'm relying very heavily on them and quoting from them. Uh, a lot of the material I have this morning is from their books. And so I want to encourage you to get a copy for yourself. A lot of what you'll read in this is what you're going to hear this morning. And so uh, I needed help and, and good resources for that. So I'm going to talk about that real briefly, though, is be, before we get into the message to kind of lead up to this series of what a healthy church is. Uh, it can, can mean a number of different things. So let's, I want to talk about it, explain it. Um, first, the, the question that I have when I come to that statement, what a healthy church is, is what makes up a church? What, what makes a church? And, and the answer is Christians, right? You know, but that seems very simplified. So what do I mean by, by Christians? What does that mean? What are the details? You know, there's many in our culture that, that feel to be a Christian is just to have a personal relationship with, with God, and that's it. And it's, it's, I agree to that extent, but there's still yet more. You know, having a personal relationship with God is incredibly important, but there's secondary relationships, those relationships that Christ himself established for us. You know, God didn't intend for us to, to pick and choose certain people just to hang out with whenever we felt like it. It's not a Facebook group. That's not what Jesus died for. No, it, it's the church. It's, these are real people, flesh and blood people, step on your toes people. That is the church. And we'll come back to this gospel and, and to greater detail. But as I walk through this, what, what constitutes a Christian? How, how would we define what a Christian is? Well, very simply, a Christian is a person who has been forgiven of their sin and have been reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This happens when a person repents of their sins and puts their faith in the perfect life and the substitutionary death and resurrection back to life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A Christian is a person who has come to the end of their resources. They know that they are in plain opposition to God's law and they, they've tried to live for themselves. They, they've tried to earn it. They've tried to, to worship other things instead of God. But now they've turned away from those idols of worship. 
whether it's a career or their family or their stuff or their opinions of other people or the gods they worship or the other religions. You know, a Christian is someone who knows that if they die tonight, they will stand before their creator. And when he asks, why should I allow you into my presence? They know it's not because of anything they've done, but because of Jesus Christ and what he has done and his shed blood on the cross that made a way for them to be reconciled to God. We're gonna talk about the gospel. We're gonna dive into that this morning. But so a Christian is someone who has, first of all, understood their need for a savior and is now reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. But what does this have to do with the church? So much of the time we, we talk about church, we discuss it and talk about it in terms of a building or an event. I'm guilty of this. We, we say this, right? Well, where are you going at, at 10, 45, 11 o'clock on Sundays? Well, I'm going to church. We, we talk it in a way like it's, a, it's a, a place that we're going. And sometimes we talk about it as it's a spiritual service provider, like pulling up to get gas. But that's not the church. No, the church is it's people, blood-bought people of God. And when Paul writes, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, he didn't give himself up for a place, for an address. No, he gave up himself for people. So, so maybe it'd be better for us to, to change the way we talk for myself. We, we don't go to church. No, we gather as the church. We, we come together. Maybe this seems small to you, but I think it lends itself to a greater reality of what we should be doing here at Edgewood. So what do I mean by healthy and describe that? Well, when we recognize that the church is a people and not a place, it should help us know what is important and what is not. I, I need help with this. I need to be reminded of this on a regular basis. And, and maybe you do too. Let me give you an example. I've had, I have a potential to let something like the style of worship of music to dictate whether I would attend a church or not, or, or even leave a church. We've attended a few churches where I wasn't employed, and so had to think through this as we, we started attending. Now, if I attended a church for a while, and then the music started changing, the style, I mean, but the gospel content continues to be the same, should I leave? You know, don't get me wrong, music is, is very important. It can be very much an emotional thing, but, but what does it say of my love for Christ and my love for the people if we leave for that reason alone. I understand that music can be a very arbitrary example, but, and maybe one that's used a whole lot for this discussion. You know, I could have said, um, we use the example of the flavor of cookies that we serve after the service. But the point is, uh, these very two suggestions is, have we forgotten that the church fundamentally is a people and not a place? We tend to do that. We tend to, to fall into that. But at the very same time, the Bible teaches that Christians should be very much um, careful about what happens at church, what it does, who it is, how it lives. These are very important things. So how do we balance these two? Caring about the people, but also caring about what the church does, the people do. Now, the bulk of my messages uh, throughout the year of the marks of a healthy church will, will be centered on this idea. If, if I were to talk to you this morning about um, preaching a message on raising a Christian family, I would, I would naturally talk about things about eating together as a good thing as a family, praying together, reading the Bible together, laughing together, spending time, and the list would go on. And throughout the message, I would reiterate that parents would make mistakes and kids would be kids. And hopefully you'd understand that it would be impossible for you to reach perfection in your family. It's the same with the church. Our church will fail you. 
This church will fail you. This church will not meet all of your expectations. And we may even fail to live out perfectly how we should act and react. And if this becomes the case, remember that this group of people, this people where you are sitting right now, I want you to look around right now. Can you do that? A little interaction. See the people, okay? Not just me. We're a family. Do you recognize that? Do you understand that? And as a family, we're growing in grace, right? I hope we're all growing still. We all haven't achieved. And so my encouragement is that we should love one another, that we serve one another, that we pray for one another. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a neat thing as you're connected to a church longer and longer that when I see certain people and I've built a relationship with them, my initial thought is things that are happening in their life and that helps me to pray for them. You know, I'm gonna put Chris in the spot. Chris works in a field that's real difficult. But when I see Chris, I immediately think, I'm gonna pray for him and his job. I don't even know what details of how his week went. I don't need to know. All I know is of what Chris does there. And that should formulate as we're a body, as we're a family, that we see people and we're a part of their life, we pray for them. We, we encourage them. We see it as our family. We're, we're patient with them. You know, again, think of, of the people who are sitting in your role right now and think of them as family. Well, actually, some of you are sitting with your family, so that's pretty easy, right? <laughs> But look down farther down the row, okay? <laughs> family. You know, when your parents or your siblings or your children fail to meet your expectations, do you throw them out of your family? Do you, do you shun them? Do you just ignore them? Do you say, I'm not going to talk to them anymore because they're not meeting what I think they should do? Are we so quickly to be done with them? You know, very difficultly, as you go into this illustration, I can take it even further, and we'll do this this year, but... How do you respond when your family member is headlong in sin? You know, they are in sin. They refuse to repent. They, they don't want to see what God's word says. They don't want to acknowledge it. They just are, they're, they're done with talking about their sin. Do you just sit back and allow them to continue in sin? Or do you lovingly and graciously continue to come back to them with scripture so that they would repent of their sin? We're going to talk about this here. We're going to talk about the, the issue of church discipline and how important that is as a church family. So I cover all this just in my introduction, okay? It's going to be a long one today, so buckle up. Because I desire for us as a church to be healthy, that we're a healthy church, continuing to learn how to persevere and to love one another when there are differences. Now, the church is, is a people, not a place. It's not a statistic. It's a body united in Jesus Christ who's the head. It's a family joined together by, the, by adoption through Jesus Christ. And, and I pray we will increasingly recognize our responsibility to love and to serve and to encourage and to hold each other accountable as the, as the family of God. So where are we going this year? Well, if, if you saw in your bulletin, there's a white little handout there. And, and it's a little one tricorder deal. And that's, it lists out for the quarter of where uh, we're going to be spending our time preaching. Um, I'm a planner, and I've sat down in the last few weeks, last two months, actually planning out my preaching for 2016. And so my hope is every quarter, when we approach it, you'll see where, where we're going to be this quarter. And it lists out the different series that there are. We have the, the, this series, The Marks of a Healthy Church. We have the Missions Conference coming in February. And then next week, I begin a series in the Gospel of John. And so my, my encouragement in that is to be praying for, for me as we go through this, you know, I, I want to give you the, 
the messages and the, and the, uh, the passages in John because I'd like you to read that the week prior. You come informed, you sit down as we feast on God's word. You've read it, you've looked at it, you've even studied and come up to me afterwards and say, well, I, I found this, please do. Please don't hesitate. Don't correct me during the sermon though, please, Tim. Tim's smiling back there with this big grin. He's just ready to go. <clears throat> I appreciate that. that but we, I wanna grow together as we study God's word. And so that, that is there as a tool to help you as we dive in this year of what we're gonna be preaching on. And so in the, in the messages of, of the healthy church, we're gonna talk about issues of evangelism and missions and expository preaching. I have a whole message about preaching. And we're gonna talk about church membership and church discipline and, and a few others that I haven't listed yet. So I'm really excited what God's gonna do through this year and excited um, for, for what God's gonna teach us as we dive into this. Um, but as we begin this morning, we're gonna center on uh, the centrality of, of why we're here, and that's the gospel. So before I begin here, join me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come and to worship together as the body of Christ. Father, I thank you for my family that's here. I thank you for their, uh, their love and care and concern that I see not only in our lives, but with one another as I observe it. I thank you for the privilege that we have and the freedom that we have to come and to, and to join together and to, to sing songs of worship to you, to sing about the gospel. And now, and to give back to what you've given to us in worship. And now as we open up your word, we pray that you would teach us, that your spirit would guide us. Father, I pray and I, and I ask and plead that you would speak through me this morning, that, that your people will hear from you, that they'll come away changed based upon hearing your word here this morning. We thank you that you loved us and that you sent your son to die for us. And may you be honored and glorified in this message. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. A healthy church has a biblical understanding of the gospel. You know, a healthy church is a church where every member, young or old, immature or mature, comes together around the incredible good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. A biblical understanding of the gospel should inform every sermon. It should inform every baptism, every time we partake in communion, which we'll do this morning. Every song, every prayer, every conversation. And my desire is that the life of Edgewood Bible Church, the members of this church, will, will pray and long to know this gospel more deeply. Why? Well, because the hope of the gospel is the hope of knowing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is the hope of becoming like him as we see him as he is. I desire for us to develop and grow a gospel culture here in this church that is born out of a gospel doctrine. When doctrine is clear and culture is beautiful, our church will be powerful. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture are crucial. Francis Schaeffer wrote concerning this many years ago. He says, one cannot explain the explosive dynamite, the, the dunamis of the early church, apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community, but exhibition of the love of God and practice is beautiful and must be there. 
We, we desperately need the strength to hold tightly into gospel doctrine, especially in the world in which we live. But we also need real help to develop and grow this, this gospel culture that brings the church together within the struggles of life. And Schaefer continues in another book, and he says, if the church is what it should be, young people will be there, but they will not just be there. They will be there with the blowing of horns and the clashing of high-sounding cymbals, and they will come dancing with flowers in their hair. Take a guess what year that was written. 1970, he wrote this. So I don't know many young people that are coming in with flowers in their hair anymore, but there might be some that come in with full-body tattoos and piercings. And do we hold open the gospel for them so that they, they come into our, our gathering here and, and they say, by the preaching of the word and by the conversations of people around here, this is the answer I've been looking for. That God is working in their hearts and they understand their need for a savior. And when we come to a discussion of doctrine or culture, usually most people, as they listen, lean one way or the other. Some of us naturally lean to the camp that speak truth and standards and definitions, and yet others lean to the way of, of feeling and, and vibe of relationships. My wife and I jokingly say they're, they're fluffy people persons. Not a bad thing. I'm just usually not that way. They're very good at getting to know people. And certain churches can only emphasize one and not the other, but very few emphasize both. If we're left to ourselves, we will get it partly wrong, but we won't feel wrong because we're partly right too, but only partly. Truth without grace is harsh and ugly, but grace without truth is sentimental and weak. The living Christ is full of grace and truth, John 1.14 says. And so we need a gospel doctrine and a gospel culture that will result in power. We want power to serve God, right? To proclaim, right? We, we serve a risen and powerful Savior, and we have a powerful message. And so the next question in this is, what is the gospel? And you would think that at this point, January 3rd, 2016, it would be an easy answer, but we've been doing this church for a long time, and a lot of answers come in from varying points in different churches that seem to muddle the water of what the gospel truly is. But the gospel is of great importance. It's, it stands at the very center of Christianity. It is what we have founded our lives upon. It is what we've built our church around. The gospel is not news that we are okay. It's not the news that God is love. It's not the news that Jesus wants to be your friend. It's not the news that God has a wonderful plan for your life. No, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a sacrificial substitute for sinners, and he rose again on the third day to make a way for us to be reconciled and made right with God. It is the news that the judge will become father if we repent and believe. There are four points that I usually gravitate to that I've learned from Mark Dever in his book, What is a Healthy Church? And he coined these words and his protege, um, Greg Gilbert, the book, What is the Gospel? kind of goes into greater detail. So I'm gonna encourage you to get that. But there's four points that he has as he's going to share the gospel, that he wants to talk to people when he's sharing the gospel. And these four things are God, man, Christ, response, that he wants to land on. God, man, Christ, response. And this morning, we're going to talk about that in one verse, one that I'm sure everyone here has memorized, John 3.16. It's a verse that you see plastered on billboards, not billboards, but on signs at football games, Right? Everyone sees this, but what a powerful verse. 
So as I did in the first service, we're going to do it in the second service. So whether you're shy or not, we're going to recite it together because everyone knows. Someone asked what version, but just the version that you memorized it in, okay? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I'm so happy that that's a foundational verse that we learn at a very young age. Talked about it yesterday at home, and all of a sudden, you know, Madeline Avier, they, they got the verse. They've heard it. There's 24 words in, in my translation, but there's so much power in that verse. 24 words. And you know, John 3.16 is probably the most famous verse in all the Bible, and it shows us clearly the doctrine of the gospel. And the gospel is for us personally. But we begin first with God, as I said. It says, for God so loved the world. It should always begin with God as we walk into the gospel. But in our culture, the word God is so familiar to many that they seem to gloss right over it. But I think we need to think about it and to think deeply about it. And Greg Gilbert in his book wrote something that made me draw out some of our misconceptions about God. This is what he wrote. He says, let me introduce you to God, lowercase g. You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in and talk to him. He might be sleeping now. He's old, you know, and doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the one he talks about when he, you really get him going, were a long time ago before most of us were even born. That was, when back, that was way back when people cared about what he thought about things and considered him pretty important to their lives. Of course, that's all changed now, though, and, and God, poor fellow, just never adjusted very well. Life's moved on and passed him by. Now he spends most of his time just hanging in the garden out back. I go there sometimes to see him, and there we tarry and walk and talk softly and tenderly among the roses. Anyway, a lot of people still like him, it seems, or at least, because he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. And you'd be surprised how many people even drop by to visit and ask for things every once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him. He's here to help. Thank goodness, all the crankiness you read about God and his old books, you know, having the earth swallow up people and raining down fire in cities, that sort of thing, all that has seemed to fade in his old age. Now he's just a good nature, low maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to, especially since he's almost, he almost never talks back. And when he does, it's usually to tell me through some slightly weird sign that what I want to do regardless is all right by him. That's really the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know the best thing about him though? He doesn't judge me, ever, for anything. Oh, sure, I know deep down he wishes that I'd be better, more loving, less selfish, and all that, but, but God's realistic. He knows I'm human and nobody's perfect, and I'm, and I'm sure he's okay with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. After all, he's love, right? And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know, and I wouldn't have him any other way. Okay, we can go in now, and don't worry, we don't have to stay too long. Really, he's grateful for any time that he can get. I don't know if you've ever heard of that caricature, any similarities in the world in which we live. Seems kind of silly, right? If you've been in church very long, maybe it seems very opposed to what we see, but I've heard those caricatures in this world from people I've talked to when I sit down and talk about the gospel. That's how they view God. God is, is kind and loving and somewhat cordial. He's this, he's this needy old grandfather-type man. And he has some wishes, but he doesn't want to make demands. He doesn't want to impose. And he, he wants to forgive. He wants to work with you. But church, this isn't the God of the Bible. 
No. If we're to share the gospel faithfully, we need to explain who our holy God is. You know, Pastor John reminded us last week in his sermon, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And it's true. God does not gain by our clarity about him. We do. So go back to the beginning. Where did you get your idea of God? Where did you learn about who God is? You know, way back in, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God, God speaks about himself and he says, I am God Almighty in Genesis 17.1. And, and, and almost no one believes that God is truly mighty, which is why God said it. But when that amazing thought drops into our mental pool, the ripples move in all sorts of directions into our life. How about these verses from Exodus 34? It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty. How, how amazing this verse is when you first glance, right? The God, God Almighty, he's loving and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. But usually we stop short. We forget the last part there of what Moses wrote. He ends it by saying, but who will by no means clear the guilty? We hear it, but we don't want to engage in that. We don't think God would actually deal or take care of sin. And as I thought deeply about it, uh, and trying to illustrate it in some way, I kind of feel like a common view of God dealing with sin is like my 10-year-old when I say, go clean your room, which we do on a regular basis. And they, they try to deal with the room as much as they can, but the stuff is just overwhelming. And so they begin to, to stuff it under their bed and put it in their closet and hide it under covers. They, they don't want to deal with it. They want, they want to ignore it. They want to move on. And in fact, many of our world believe God in that way, that, that God of love could really rightly deal with sin, that he would, that he would, he would punish people for wickedness? How could that be? But we need to be clear as, as gospel proclaimers in, in our world to be faithful to the gospel because, yes, God is loving, but he's not weak in justice. And God's love doesn't remove his justice and righteousness. You know, Gilbert writes in his book, he says, it's always interesting to watch what happens when people who insist that God would never judge them come face to face with undeniable evil. Confronted with some truly horrific evil, they want a God of justice, and they want him now. They want God to overlook their own sin, but not the sin of the terrorist. Forgive me, they say, but don't you dare forgive him. You see, nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil. They just want a God who declines to deal with their own evil. Folks, Scripture teaches something drastically different. And God is perfectly just, perfectly holy, and he, he deals decisively with all evil. And we as Christians have done a wonderful job in this world of convincing people that God loves them. And, and we don't want to forget that. We don't want to leave that out, but we cannot stop short. That God deals with sin. We want the world to know that this loving God is also holy and righteous and just, and that he will not overlook and he will not tolerate sin. So that moves from God to man. And the second point in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. How did God love the world? Not moderately, but massively. God so loved the world, not because we're lovable, but, but because he's God and he's love. And we're part of this world, born in the darkness, apart from God. 
And God so loved us. This love of God becomes all the more evident when we think about the world of ours in which we live. Later in John 3, John writes this. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light, lest his work should be exposed. It's hard to admit when we read that, that we once too loved darkness. But that's what the text says. We, we know deep down it's true. We've all done evil things and tried to cover them up, fearing to be truly exposed for who we really are. We, we tried to run. We tried to dismiss the conviction that we feel in our hearts, fearing to be truly unprotected. We tried to forget the memory and, and then medicate our pain. It's hard to face the hard truth that we're sinners through and through. We don't want to think that we're really that bad. Let me illustrate this for you. I have some help here from Greg Gilbert for this illustration. But in August, I flew to Kansas City for a two-day conference on the church and its impact on the world. And I flew in the day before because the conference started in the afternoon and, and I had the morning. And so I got, got up and got ready and, and I wanted to venture in the city because I wanted to find the best thing in Kansas City. You know what that is, right? It's not the baseball team, it's barbecue. And so I asked a lot of people trying to understand where's the best barbecue place. And so I got it, Joe's Kansas City Barbecue. And I was on my way, plugged it into my GPS, my phone. I had a rental car and I was, I was there, I was ready. I was prepared as best I could, heading down the highway, thinking I had everything covered except for one thing, the speed limit. And I'm, I'm on this highway, it was interchanged, and all of a sudden it jumped from 60 miles per hour to 45. And the next thing I know as I'm going down the highway is I see blue and red lights in my rearview mirror. I was caught going 63 and a 45. I tried pleading my case, and I'm out of town. I don't know, you know, the speed limits. And the guy, well, he just stared at me. But nonetheless, he was gracious. He wrote the tick for, ticket for 50 and a 45. Still $175. Tough lesson to learn, right? Got home from the conference and I sheepishly told my wife what happened. It became a very expensive conference at that point. And I log onto the website now. You don't have to mail it or anything. You just log on and pay. So I'm, I'm logging on a few days later to pay. And as you're going through it, it brought up an option. And it said I had to click the box to pay that signified that I was guilty. Guilty of this crime. And I hesitated. I paused a little bit. I thought, well, I don't feel guilty. I recognize I did this. I, I, I knew I got caught, but it didn't weigh heavily upon my soul. And now they're saying I'm a guilty criminal. And I realized I should be careful next time, but I didn't want to pay the fine again, but it didn't mourn over the ticket. I didn't, I didn't think deeply about it. You know, one thing as I reflected on that and it's brought to my attention that most people think of sin, especially their own sin, as not much more than getting a speaking ticket. Yeah, you caught me, but, but really, it's not that big of a deal. And actually, there are actually more bigger criminals. That thought actually went through my mind. Seriously, I mean, I'm going a little over the speed limit, but aren't there someone out there shooting someone else, you know? Why are you bothering me? Our sins, though, are much more than a speeding ticket. It is breaking a relationship. It's rejecting God and his law in our lives. It is pure rebellion of an almighty God. And we, we have to go back to Genesis 3, where I preached a number of weeks ago about, about this first act of rebellion. You know, Adam and Eve were given rule over everything, and also with this rule, they were given the charge to not to disobey God what he had commanded. 
you know, that if you remember, he said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were tempted and they succumbed to that temptation and they ate. And, and when they took the fruit, it wasn't like they were disobeying some arbitrary rule that was set just there to frustrate their lives. No, they were effectively rejecting God's authority over them and they were declaring that they didn't need God any longer. They were rejecting God. It's not Adam and Eve, though, it's us too. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short to the glory of God. And earlier in Romans 3.10, none is righteous. No, not one. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not denying sin or its effects. No, it's recognizing the sin and the one who came to pay the penalty for sin. And what is the penalty for sin? It's death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. In other words, the payment we have to pay for our personal sin is to die. And we can't do it. It's not just a physical death, but a spiritual death, a a very forceful separating of our wretched, sinful selves with a holy and righteous God. And the Bible teaches that the final end for unrepentant, unbelieving sinners is a place of eternal conscious torment in a place called hell. It's a real place. No matter what people think in 2016, no matter what books are written and how they explain it away, hell is real. Revelation describes it as a lake of fire and sulfur. Jesus himself describes it as a place of unquenchable fire. There will be no end. You know, it hit me as, as I'm studying and preparing, reading about this and understanding hell again, that it's not just a four-letter word on my Bible. It's not just a word. It's a place. It's real. Now, this world's going to try its hardest to convince you otherwise. But think about this the next time you see your unbelieving neighbor or that family member that rejects Christ. They will not die and disappear into oblivion. Their life won't just cease to exist and then fade away. They will pass from this life into a real presence of everlasting torment if they do not recognize their need for a Savior. Folks, we don't make these things up. Christians don't read and believe and talk about hell because we somehow enjoy it. Absolutely not. We talk about hell because we believe the Bible. We believe that hell is real. And we believe it with tears and we believe it with pain for those that we know who continue to reject the gospel and are in danger of spending the rest of their eternity there. Folks, this is very sobering to recognize. And I understand in our culture and our mindset and our, our humanness, we want to run from this uncomfortable subject. But it's there. There is not one of us righteous, not even one. And because of that, one day every mouth will be silenced, every wagging tongue will be stopped, and the whole world will be held accountable to God. And this is the bad news. This is the sobering truth that we need a Savior. We need someone to rescue us. And John 3.16 continues. He says, For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, Christ. The son is Jesus, the promised one that we've been talking about through Christmas. He is the promised Messiah. He is the one to come and to rescue us from this plight of sin. And the word only that John uses means that Jesus is unique. There is no one like him. He is irreplaceable. There is no other savior. The world has no other hope. No other person will appear out of heaven to rescue us. It is Jesus. It is either Jesus or death, despair, and destruction. As I said earlier, next week we start a a series in the Gospel of John, and I'm, I'm really excited for this. But Jesus in the book of John says some really cheeky things. By the way, cheeky, I learned that from John Collins. That's an English term, I think. Some really audacious things, okay? He, he says, I and the Father am one. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. He also says, unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus is unique. And C.S. Lewis helps us get right to the point of this. And I love this quote from Mere Christianity. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lewis minces no words here. Jesus is God. And we didn't make this up. He came down from the glories of heaven and lived a perfect life that we could never live. He died a guilty death by taking sin upon himself. He paid for our guilt and he satisfied the wrath of our holy God. And he conquered death by rising from the dead three days later. And he did all of this as a substitute. He had no sin in himself. And God fully gave us his son, holding nothing back. And God gave him up at the cross, abandoning him to the punishment that we deserve. This is the mass of love of God. The son leaving the eternal glory of the Trinity, perfection in heaven, stooping down, humiliating himself to become one of us. And in the process, opening for us a clear understanding to see the big heart of God. The son of God is our only entry point back to God. He's the only one given by God, the only one acceptable to God. There is no other. And only the Christian gospel is based solely on how loving God is to the undeserving. Every other religion has some part of its message that the recipient must do something. But with God, you cannot do anything. God did it all. If you thought you could earn your way through worship, through service, through going to church, through sacrifice, you would forever be working and working and working and striving to get to heaven. And you could never attain it. In Christ alone, we, the guilty, find all the love that we will ever need. But finally, as we understand this, there needs to be response. And John finishes the verse with the answer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This offer is made to all. 
No matter what you've done in this life, no matter who you are, no matter how you feel you've been discredited, the offer is for you to believe. The choice is clear. Either you will believe or you'll perish. Every one of us will go one way or the other. You'll either believe in the Son or you'll believe in yourself and you'll perish. What, what does it mean to believe in him? You know, I, it came to me again this week as I was thinking through that idea of belief. And we have this neat thing on our phone that as we take photos, we upload it to the cloud and it stores it there. But then it sends me a, a daily email, basically, of all the photos that happened in that day and years prior. And this is kind of a fun thing, but just a couple days ago, uh, it came through on December 30th. And that was the day uh, last year that my, uh, what number is she? Charlotte, our third daughter, sorry. She learned to walk. And so I have the videos that are coming on my phone. And so I'm looking at it and re- remembering what that was like. And, and uh, so I, I began to, to watch the video and see it. And, and, and I'm watching her taking steps to me and I hear my cheesy voice in the video. And, and what I'm doing is trying to coax her to believe that I'll be there. You know, at that point, Charlotte was able very much to stand, but unwilling to take steps. And, and, and on this day, you know, a breakthrough came, as it does for all kids, thank the Lord. She believed. You know, she, she sees and understands. You know, she takes steps. I'll hold on to my hand, of course, but as soon as I let go and I'm standing there, she's staring at me. Staring down, in fact. Un, un, unwavered, not going to look away. She's staring at me. You know, she's thinking, I'm sure, am I going to leave her? Am I fooling around? Or am I going to be there? And her gaze was, was focused. She believed. She trusted. You know, what, what helped my daughter to take those steps wasn't necessarily her skill in walking, but her confidence that I was there. You know, real gospel belief in lo- involves trusting Jesus. Believing in him. John in the literal Greek text says this in this verse, John 3, 16, whoever believes into him should not perish but have eternal life. Real belief takes us into Jesus Christ. It takes us from self-confidence into Christ's confidence. We move from being complete in ourselves to being complete in Christ. We stop treating him like a side dish at the table of life and realize that he's the main course. He is our all. And we gladly lose ourselves in who he truly is. You know, theologians call this radical reorientation. They call it the, our union with Christ. And what rich words those are. What a profound thought, our union with Christ. When we believe into Christ, we can stop hiding and resisting. We can surrender all. We're really forgiven of our real sins by our real Savior. Ray Ortland says of this, he says, what matters most to God is not which sins we've committed or not committed or how we stack up in comparison with other sinners. What matters most about you in God's sight is not the bad or good things you've done, but your trust and openness to Christ versus your self-trust and defensiveness toward Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. You don't have to be good enough. You, don't, you have to know the answers because you won't. God has provided everything we need in Christ. But if you don't believe, if you don't trust, if you don't repent, you'll perish. And you will stand before the white hot judgment of God in eternity where you will give an account of your rejection of him. 
Hell is for people who could have enjoyed the forgiveness of God but held back. It's for people who could have enjoyed God's forgiveness but held back. And Paul writing to the Thessalonians says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That is perishing. But forgiveness and eternal life is available. It's available right now for hell-deserving sinners. You have to respond to this message. You can't ignore it. You need to repent of your sins and believe that God sent his son to come as a sacrifice for you. You come with empty hands to receive what God has done for you. Have you trusted him? Have you surrendered yourself to his reign as your complete savior? He offers eternal life. He offers you himself. I want to end this morning by talking briefly why the gospel is important for us. You know, biblical understanding of the gospel is vitally important because the gospel is the power of God for salvation of those that believe. And it's the only way for sinful people to be made right with God. The gospel is also the purpose and motivation of this church. Everything we do at Edgewood Bible Church flows from our understanding of the gospel. Our preaching, our counseling, our discipleship, our music, our evangelism, our missions, it flows from our understanding of the gospel. And preaching the gospel is our job as the family. Mark Dever in his book says, when a church is healthy and its members know and cherish the gospel above everything else, they will increasingly want to share it with the world. You know, count up the hours that you spend with the unbelieving world in a week. I bet it's more than you believe, more than you understand. You are surrounded by people that desperately need to hear the gospel. Charles Spurgeon once remarked about the responsibility to share the gospel. It wouldn't be a good sermon without Charles Spurgeon, right? He says this, he says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. We have a responsibility. We have a joyous responsibility to not only pray for those that we know that need Christ, but to share with them. Folks, the church is not a location with an address. It's a family with a mission. Do you know the gospel? Can you articulate the gospel? And my desire for our church family is to grow and understand the gospel, to be faithful stewards of the gospel in our lives. I pray that we can be faithful and gospel proclaimers as we leave this place. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we've had to come and to worship together. Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us and guides us and leads us, that gives us instruction and understanding. Without your word in our hands, we would have no hope to know and understand who you are. And you've given us your word. We're so thankful for that. Help us not to take it for granted. Help us to, to study and to read. 
Father, I pray that we will never grow cold towards the gospel, that we will remember it, that we will discuss it and talk about it. Help us to, to preach the gospel to ourselves in the midst of struggles. And as we struggle, as if we sin, help us to be quick to confess it and remind ourselves of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us. Help us to preach the gospel to our families and in our homes, to talk about it, to discuss it with our kids. Help us go back into your word and to rehearse what it says and to remember it. Help us to, rem to memorize verses that talk about the gospel. Father, I pray that you would embolden these people as they go out and to serve you in their, in their jobs. As they're out in the world, may you give them courage to share the gospel, opportunities. I pray that they have wisdom. They would know and understand the right time and how to share it. That they have grace and love as they share the gospel with their coworkers, with their neighbors and their friends and their family. But most of all, God, I pray that you would be honored and glorified in our church's life, our people. It's for the Son, and in his name we pray. Amen.